Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For the equity market in the United States, we are still within 1% of an all time high. Will the equity market find continued support from the fundamentals, both the earnings and the data? I'm pleased to say here in New York, Mona Mahajan joins us now, Allianz's Global Investors US Investment Strategist. Good morning to you, Mona. Good morning, Jan. So let's uh, explore that question, shall we, and try and answer it. Will we find support from the fundamentals? Yeah, you know, I think uh, the market, you know, year to date up about 16% from the December 24th low up 23% now. So really, uh, to to get a next like higher, we're going to have to see um, a really impressive set of fundamentals. What we're looking at and where we're seeing signs of optimism is probably more towards the second half of the year, when not only China potentially rebounds, um, not only where we might get some European stabilization and the U.S. earnings story unfolds, but some of the geopolitical tensions that we've talked about, um, U.S.-China trade, maybe even something around Brexit starts to clear up as well. Uh, so I think in order to get another leg higher here, one, we'd be hopeful for some sort of consolidation. I think that would be healthy. Uh, and then two, we'd really need to see the global picture improve. The global, the global picture improve, but the fact is it's been a stunning rally. J&J earnings just came out. I guess they were midpoint, John. You know, not much to talk about there. They delivered boring average goods, fine. Great, great. Are you as a strategist going to microanalyze every earnings <laughs> report, the revenue and the margin dynamics? You know, I think generally uh, the earnings picture here in the U.S., where we were in the last quarter, um, revisions were moving downward, downward, yeah, downward. Yeah. Now we are starting to see some basing in that. And we're seeing Q1 earnings, which started in earnest last Friday, really beating expectations here. So Q1 expectations okay. are negative 4%, probably going to get closer but to flat. It's an expectation function. And as Pharaoh knows, it's out six months, out 12 months. What's the earnings view out six months or 12 months that's yeah. going to drive John's 201K back to excellence? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think uh, in the U.S., we're looking at 4 to 6% earnings growth this year. And it's interesting, when you run the analysis, uh, different earnings environments, the type of S&P returns you can get. In this negative 10 to positive 10 earnings growth environment, you actually get high single digits, mid-teen returns. Okay. It's only when you're negative, negative earnings that you get this, negative What she S&P. just said, John, is so important. You can have flat earnings and stocks go up and there's silence in the room. How can that be? But there it is. That's what the math says. Well, you know where the silence in the room right now is with the financials. Some of these names can report record quarterly earnings. And we don't even sniff. We just <laughs> sort of look away yeah. and it doesn't even matter. Bank of America coming out this morning with record quarterly Earnings. The question right. still is, okay, that's what we expect. Where's the growth? And what am I willing to pay for these earnings? What's the answer to that, Mona? Yeah, you know, I think financials is a tough one because you have the flattening yield curve dynamic. That's been going on for nearly five years now. Um, when you look at rates coming down, yields coming down, 
actually supports many other sectors except the banks. Uh, banks don't thrive necessarily in a flattening yield curve environment. And certainly when, when yields are low or in some cases around the world negative, uh, not great for banks here. And so I think that's the, the story behind why financials have lagged somewhat. I think now we may see a bit of catch up here, given that uh, earnings are, are coming out ahead of expectations. But I think from a sector perspective, we see opportunities beyond financials. And in fact, you know, when we look at where you want to go for growth uh, in a lower growth environment, we continue to see technology and discretionary in particular, where the U.S. consumer seems to be quite supported here. Uh, the other hand of our what we call our barbell approach is really uh, healthcare and staples. Those are sectors that have lagged this year, but really are defensive, do well in a slowing growth environment. And to be clear here, though, you don't buy the bank bull argument that the financial valuations are going to re-rate higher. You know, I think it'll be tough in an environment where uh, yields are going lower potentially and the Fed is off the table for 2019. Many are expecting their right next move to be a rate cut. So I think that's a tough environment for banks. I do buy the U.S. consumer story, which I think is a positive for banks. So let's so. talk about the regional tilt that you're looking yeah. at at the moment. There's a lot of people getting excited about the very small green shoots appearing mm-hmm. in Europe. And slowly, I can feel the bearish sentiment capitulating as the year progresses. Where do you yeah. stand on that, yeah. that whole Europe versus US yeah. debate yeah. that we've had for the last couple of years? Yeah, I know. It's interesting. We came into the year uh, with another very clear barbell. On one hand of that barbell was the US, best on the block from a developed market perspective. Other hand of that barbell was China and parts of EM. Now, China, you know, has performed phenomenally this year. Um, the market's up 30% plus. What is we're that, looking is, at... Oh, go ahead, please. Oh, no, please. I was just going to say quickly on the European question, we are, uh, you know, what John was alluding to, we're starting to, to kind of come around to as well. Uh, Europe may benefit if there is a resolution to trade. Yeah. It's a great source of dividends potentially and clearly has lagged um, the markets. And from a valuation perspective, starting to look somewhat interesting, but again, very data well, dependent. year to date, I mean, Chinese stocks, this is in U.S. dollars. Yeah. John, they're up yeah. 31%. And maybe they're up 42% if you look at another. Is that a real stock market? <laughs> I mean, does Allianz actually say to people, China, to invest in China stocks is actually normal bid-ass dynamics? You know, the they've opened up their A-shares a market. That, we think, is a real story. Um, will become okay. a larger and larger part of the MSCI index. We agree, though, a lot of the Chinese equity market retail-driven. And so that can be more volatile than, than the yeah. average market. Okay, Mona, thank you so much for coming. Thank it just you guys. lights out. Love it. Uh, from Allianz. Thanks, Mona. Uh, today, I like, John, what you were framing there between the Europe US dynamic, which to me is almost a May June story. Gerard Cassidy with his RBC Capital Markets. His research note is, you know, the occasional small bank, lots of regional work. And he does look at the two big to fails like Bank America. Gerard, if I could go to one slide in the Bank of America first presentation, the PowerPoint, I'm going to guess it's 20 pages. The digital build out page is just extraordinary. Are we underestimating the speed of digital growth within American banking? Tom, you bring up a really good point because I was looking at that page as well this morning, and what took my breath away was the person-to-person payments. Yeah, Zell. Zell. When I oh send John gosh. Farrell money, you know, Zell. Yes, you I go. lose on Liverpool. I send him money. <laughs> 
and rather having to write them a check. And so that that growth has been very impressive. And I think you put your thumb on something here. As much as there was a threat from the you know tech uh, area, the financial tech companies two or three years ago, companies like Bank America, J.P. Morgan, even some of our big regionals are spending incredible amounts of money and are at the cutting edge. And Bank America is right there, as evidenced by slide five. I mean, Gerard, compared to, say, the rest of Europe, the United States well behind on this kind of initiative. There's still people in this country that regularly pay their rent with the check. And the checkbook is something that many people in Europe don't have in their pocket anymore, Gerard. So I just wonder how much growth is left here. And it sounds like a lot. John, you make a great point. I'm always, when I travel over to Europe, uh, I'm always amazed at how much further along they are. And one thing I remind myself is that we have legacy systems in our banking industry, as you well know. And because we have 5,700 banks still, you've got to convert all 5,700 over to these new systems, and it takes time. And that's why Canada and Europe are well ahead of us in our banking technology. But to your point, there's a lot of growth coming from our banks in this area. So, Jared, loads of growth coming. We've got to talk about the complete bank, just how much this moves the overall dial. Does it shift it at all? I think over time it does, because as you know, there will be a less of a need for branches, and branches is probably, or the branch delivery channel is the, one of the most expensive parts of a retail bank. And because of this technology, we just won't need as many branches over the next 10 years. And those branches will transform themselves more into sales centers um, and doing everyday transactions. What is the job dynamic when all these people say we need expense control? Right, is Gerard Cassidy looking at any given big bank? Let's say if you're a round number, 150,000 employees. Is it 100 here, 100 there? Is it divisions where they're going to take out five or 10,000? Or are we missing the point? It could be something bigger. I, I think it's 100 here and 100 there. Because you might remember, Tom, coming out of the financial crisis, we, the banks had thousands of employees working on bad credit. And as you know, credit quality today is very strong. And so those people were either let go or moved into other areas. So I think what you'll see, it won't be entire divisions. Technology, I think, will complement the human element of it, but it will change, no doubt about it, over the next 10 years. Jared, let's get the earnings scorecard, shall we? It was a really rough session for Goldman yesterday. The stock was down 3.8%. Socgen coming out, cutting the price target for Goldman to a street low of 170. We closed yesterday just south of 200. What's the story there? Are they the big loser of this quarterly earnings season so far? I would say that because they're so concentrated in the capital markets, we all know from all the big banks, trading revenues were down year over year, whether it was in equity or FIC. But because they don't have the diversity of revenues of J.P. Morgan, Bank America, and Citigroup, their results were more concentrated in capital markets. And even those diversified companies like a Bank America today, their revenues were affected by the market. So I think you're yeah. right. Goldman was affected more because they're more concentrated in that business. Jared Cassidy, if you didn't know the name, I'm, I'm glad John brought up Goldman Sachs. 10-year track record with dividend, 5.49% a year. In any other industry, that's just totally unacceptable. What's the magic of Goldman Sachs at 5.49% per year? I think it still has amongst the trading community, in particular the hedge funds, 
Um, they still have an attraction. People know yeah. that they can trade this name. It's very liquid. It's volatile because of the capital markets. It's not a, a boring bank to say uh, say the least. So I think that's the attraction yeah. rather than a long-term you know investor who wants to buy and hold. Hugely valuable. Gerard Cassidy, thank you so much. After Bank of America and RBC Capital. Yeah, thank you. Marcus. Let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence media analyst Geetha Raghunathan on Netflix earnings, which come after the closing bell. Geetha, subscriptions, what will they look like? Yes, yes. It is always a story, um, a, a subscriber story. And as always, the focus will be on sub-numbers. Sub Management has guided to about 8.9 million new additions for this quarter, about 1.6 million in, in the U.S. and the rest international. But I think the bigger question, uh, John, this quarter is really going to be the 2Q guide. Uh, there are really two concerns, I think, uh, that the market is looking at. One is the rising competition, especially with a very aggressive price point coming in from the Disney Plus service. Uh, and then a 13 to 18 percent price hike that is actually taking effect for domestic subscribers in 2Q. So, Geetha, how difficult historically is it to get any kind of clarity over what's about to happen in the future when Netflix adjusts price? Do we have pretty noisy quarters? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, there has been some volatility in the past, uh, but actually the last time um, that they uh, instituted a price increase, we did not see a whole lot of churn. Uh, so kind of just showing how uh, with the breadth, the quality and the quantity of their content, um, users are willing to digest uh, even substantial price hikes. Netflix is Netflix, but it's also to me a mystery. We sort of visually understand the sweat at Disney, the sweat at the old Time Warner, et cetera, the HBO management change. How is Netflix management responding to everybody wanting to be part of their streaming world? So Netflix has, I mean, they've, they've been asked this question uh, quarter in and quarter out, and they've always kind of downplayed the competitive threat. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, Tom, Netflix offers consumers an in a very compelling entertainment experience at a relatively low cost without commercials and on any device. And if you look at the global market and the secular shift to streaming, uh, they're relatively underpenetrated. And that's something that, you know, Netflix management drives home quarter in and quarter out. Gaitha, let's talk about this secular shift to streaming. Let's talk about what is ultimately driving it. I can tell you from my own personal perspective, what drove me to cut the cord was because it costs less just to buy Hulu and to have all the channels on that. We're now going towards this world where I need Hulu, Disney Plus, Netflix, HBO. Aren't I just going back to the cost of cable again? Yeah, I mean, you know, that is kind of becoming an existential question. But I think what's going to happen, uh, especially with the new Disney service, is it might actually end up accelerating cord cutting a little bit. Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, there are there's a whole plethora of services out there. But once the dust settles, say, in the next two to three years' time, I think what we're going to see is they're going to be winners and losers. But I see both both Netflix and Disney emerging as winners. What about on the news side? You know, all the YouTube TV, as John mentioned, Hulu, and, and, and all those, do they compete against each other or are they essentially monopolistic activity? 
So what we've actually seen, so those, Tom, are what we refer to as the virtual uh, MVPDs, or, or they're basically live TV services over the Internet. Uh, they've, those services have managed to rack up about 8 million subscribers so far, which is, which is a pretty substantial number. But we've also seen, uh, but they're, they're essentially not making any money. Uh, and at some point, uh, and we've actually seen this, uh, DirecTV Now and some of the other services have been raising prices gradually and with that, there has been some increased churn. So I'm not sure everything is hunky-dory on you know, the yeah. virtual TV services front. John Farrell, I think what she just said there is absolutely critical. And, and, and that we're not sure. It's all new territory. Yeah. You know, just that simple. I mean, how many soccer games are you watching a weekend, John? Uh, two yeah. or three. Oh, you lie. You're watching five, six, no, seven, two or eight. Three. Two or three max. Okay. I, I mean, sports, Geith, very quickly here, sports is still a big draw with YouTube TV, right? Sports is absolutely a big draw. And, and, yeah. and um, you know, that was the whole bet that Fox made when they kind of sold their entertainment assets but kept sports and kept yeah. the news. Yeah. Hey, Geith, okay. great to catch up with you. Great update. Geetha Raghunathan there, Bloomberg Intelligence Media Analyst, as we count you down to Netflix earnings coming after the closing bell. Matthew Lizzetti with us, a Chief U.S. Economist with Deutsche Bank. And the joy of his research report is it is beyond loaded, not only with charts, but with intelligence charts. It's like a, it's like a you know, three-hour interview happening right now. Um, John, I, I want to go to something pretty obscure, Matt Lizzetti, to begin with. You really slice and dice inventory dynamics and business investment. Exactly where are the inventories of American business right now? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, and I think it's really important for the, the near-term growth outlook. Um, on, on some measures, inventories, you know, they've, we've had a, a reasonably big inventory built in the, the back half of last year, um, and some people, I think, have built in an inventory drag on growth uh, in the first half of this year. When we look at it, uh, it doesn't look like it's something that should significantly weigh on production. Instead, it looks to us like you had a, a big uh, import uh, increase ahead of people that were expecting tariffs. Um, and that that really has not built into manufacturing inventories. And if you look at the ISM, when manufacturing firms don't think that their inventories are too high at this point. Uh, so we do not see a big inventory drag coming uh, in the coming quarters from, from the U.S. Uh, and as a result of that, I think we're a bit above consensus on, on U.S. growth. We, we expect 2.3% growth this year, uh, where consensus is probably a little bit closer to 2%. Looking at this year in our survey, we've got it at about 2.4% for the median estimate going into next year is when a lot of people see the deceleration Matt, 1.9 percent the median estimate there what's your 2020 view we have some, something very similar to that uh, i think you know most people are looking out to 2020 they're expecting a, a modest fiscal drag uh, versus the the positive fiscal impulse you had this year there's some delay in uh, the the tightening from the fed which can take about 18 months to work its way through the system and so we have 1.9% uh, growth again next year. I think more, maybe more interestingly, as you go out to 2021, which is a very long time from now, uh, but I think a lot of people expect a continued deceleration in the U.S. and global economy. We actually have yeah. a pickup in, in 2021. And I think the reason is uh, with the Fed on hold, uh, with them not getting to a restrictive stance, and 
with the fiscal not being either a strong mm-hmm. either driver or drag, uh, there's really no good reason, I don't think, for, for the economy to uh, deviate materially from 2%. Yeah. You buried the punchline. Did I hear you say next year 1.9%? We do, yeah. If you add on any kind of Peter Hooper, Deutsche Bank inflation calculation, you're talking about a sub-4% nominal GDP, right? That's correct, yeah. Is, is it, now you studied this at UCLA. You went in, they got a library out at UCLA, folks like Game of Thrones. You went into the library at UCLA. Is there any politician in the history of mankind that can deal with a 4% or less nominal GDP? Don't they, by definition, have to always revert to fiscal expansion? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, there is a new normal in terms of thinking about growth, both on the real and, and the nominal side, um, whereas historically potential growth was 3 3% or above. We now think <clears throat> of potential growth in real terms closer to 2%. And so along with that 2% real growth, you actually have pretty good uh, labor market conditions. You have wage growth continue to pick up. We have the unemployment rate falling to 3.6%, which would be the Jeez. lowest level in, in decades and so all that from a, you know, a voter perspective, um, from a consumer's perspective, I actually think looks a lot better than you would expect John, given 2% real, uh, 4% nominal. John, what Mr. Luzzetti just said there, I have never framed on the American economy. It's just absolutely original where we are, given a suburb GDP but growth. But let's be clear here, Tom. In a 3. It shouldn't, shouldn't surprise number. you. 2% real GDP is, is basically potential in the minds of many for the U.S. economy. This shouldn't come as a shock. It was unthinkable in my childhood to have that run rate. It is a brand new world out there. But this is the new normal. It is, is the is new it normal. normal. Absolutely. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, we, we, I think we're a little bit more optimistic on getting productivity a bit higher. Uh, there is this tendency as the labor market tightens, as wage growth picks up, it incentivizes businesses to do capex and productivity move higher. Uh, so we see potential a little bit above 2%. But, but you're absolutely right. The new normal is that potential growth is much lower than it's been historically. The Fed funds rate is much lower than it's been historically. We think the Fed is yeah. done at this point. Um, and so for, for markets, it's, it's a new normal in thinking about how far the Fed can yeah. move, how much volatility you're going to have. So, Matt, just finally and quickly, your assumption here, the base case for the trajectory for the U.S. economy is based on a Fed that goes nowhere, no hikes next two years? It is. It is. And and I think there's two countervailing forces here. On, on growth, we... We're still pretty optimistic. The labor market continues to tighten. Wage growth picks up. On price inflation, on the other hand, we don't see that, that moving uh, materially higher. Uh, and in the context of the Fed reviewing their 2% inflation target, perhaps wanting to get inflation a bit higher if they move to an average inflation targeting regime, uh, we don't see them tightening as a result of that. This is wonderful. Matthew Lazzetti, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank. The mood in Paris this morning, after what we witnessed yesterday, simply somber. In the aftermath of the Great Fire that ripped through the Cathedral of Notre Dame, the iconic structure took more than 200 years to build in just a few hours that roof from back to medieval times. It is gone. Of course, the history, extraordinary from the liberation of Paris of uh, the Nazis in 1945 to the modern day as well. French authorities, they assess the damage and craft plans to rebuild the monument. Here is our Bob Moon.
If there was any good news to report as firefighters finally got control of the flames late into the night, it was word that they were able to save the two rectangular bell towers at the front of the 12th century building, although it will undoubtedly be years before those bells are heard again. It was considered the gem of French Gothic architecture, painstakingly constructed by hand, its cornerstone laid in 1163. And in the more than 850 years since, it had survived numerous challenges, ransacked, desecrated, and when it fell into serious disrepair, nearly the victim of calls to tear it down. It came through two world wars, and through the will of the people, Notre Dame Cathedral has always managed to rise again. Addressing his shocked nation last night, President Emmanuel Macron declared, as heard through a translator, we will rebuild this cathedral. The place Nous avons vécu where we have lived through all our great moments, epidemics, wars, liberations, it is the epicenter of our life. That was no overstatement. For centuries, all streets in Paris, all roads in France for that matter, led there. But during the French Revolution, it was viewed as a symbol of oppression and fell victim to numerous acts of vandalism. People took swipes at it with axes and hammers, beheading many statues. It was there that Napoleon chose to be crowned emperor in 1804. But by then, the long-neglected building on an island in the middle of the River Seine was plagued by a lead roof full of leaks. An architect determined to save the dilapidated building enlisted the help of a friend, writer Victor Hugo. His resulting novel, Notre Dame de Paris, or Our Lady of Paris, was later republished in English as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The book helped spark a movement for its restoration thanks to his rapturous descriptions of the architectural treasure as reflected in the 1939 movie version of his classic story. All over France, in every city, there stand cathedrals like this one triumphal monuments of the past. They tower over the homes of our people like mighty guardians, keeping alive the invincible faith of the Christian. Every arch, every column, every statue is a carved leaf out of our history, a book in stone, glorifying the spirit of France. Hugo himself summed up its beauty with just three words, symphony in stone. He helped make it one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world, with more visitors even than the Eiffel Tower, as Bloomberg News Paris reporter Greg Viscusi noted. The most visited monuments in Paris, it's about, you know, up to 50,000 people a day can visit it. It's a terrible cultural loss. Perhaps it was the splendorous architecture that drew so many, or the trove of fine art and religious relics inside. Among them, the crown of thorns, believed by Catholics to have been worn by Jesus Christ himself before his crucifixion. The mayor of Paris said in a tweet that it and other relics had been saved, something in which New York Cardinal Timothy Dolan found special significance. To see that reduced to ashes, my oh my, I, I remember our song, From the Ashes, uh, We Rise Up. We want to rise up with Jesus at Easter, and I believe that there'll be some rising from this dying. Much of the building's attraction, no doubt, was fascination with the heart-tugging subject of Hugo's fictional story, shunned for his deformed appearance and deaf from his years of ringing the cathedral's bells, Cosimodo. Gabriel, Guillaume, Big Marie. She made me deaf, you know. I can hear my friend. 
Lately, the ringing had been limited to a single bell, and only on special occasions, because at more than 13 tons, there was concern it could shake the tower more than it could withstand. A $6.8 million renovation project had been underway for the past couple of years, and much speculation has focused on that as a possible cause of the fire. Now, in many ways, they will be starting again from the ground up. Restoration expert Kripali Crochet is an associate dean at Indiana's University of Notre Dame and says it will take years to even start rebuilding. There has to be a complete understanding of the construction, reconstruction of this building, which may take at least uh, uh, a period of five years. But again, the will of the people seems clear. People who see their lives reflected in a building. Journalism student Celia Hedeberg notes they are drawn to it still. People have been standing here for hours now taking pictures. Earlier, um, a group of Catholic people gathered and started singing different songs. In passing, people are making half-hearted jokes about how silly it is to be crying for a building, but to be honest, that's the case for a lot of people here. That's the case for so many people around the world. I'm Bob Moon, Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.